This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined today by Samdeep Sen of Roskilde University, who'll be talking about his book, Decolonizing Palestine, Hamas Between the Anti-Colonial and the Post-Colonial. We'll also hear from Liesl Hintz of Johns Hopkins, who'll be talking about her new article, The Empire's Opposition Strikes Back, Popular Culture as Creative Resistance Tool Under Turkey's AKP. And we'll also hear from Michelle Browers of Wake Forest University about her new article, Beginnings, Continuities, and Revivals, an inventory of the new Arab left and an ongoing Arab left tradition. Uh, thanks for joining us for this program. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Liesl Hintz of the Johns Hopkins University, author of the new article, The Empire's Opposition Strikes Back, Popular Culture as Creative Resistance Tool Under Turkey's AKP, which was recently published in the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies. Liesl, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this article. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. What I'm really trying to do with this article is speak to a growing and interdisciplinary literature on the intersection of politics and pop culture, and specifically one that focuses on Turkey. Um, we hear a lot about Turkey's soap opera diplomacy, um, how Turkey is kind of using different forms of pop culture to project its you know, growing Sunni hegemon identity uh, out into the Middle East and so forth. And we also see a lot of studies about how the um, Justice and Development Party, the AKP, is using its pretty powerful influence over the media to shape a particular understanding of identity at the uh, domestic level. That is sort of nation building through television and other forms of media. And so what I wanted to do is add to that, but kind of turn it on its side and look at how the opposition, Turkey's, you can call it fractured, divided, suppressed, oppressed, how different forms of the opposition are trying to push back against these identity narratives, um, you know, that are prescribing a particular place for women in the home, that are prescribing a particular place of Islam in public life, that are prescribing particular behaviors of how you should dress and so forth. And so what you see is kind of various opposition actors, both artists themselves, and then also just everyday citizens who are repurposing artists' content, whether it's you know, a meme of a television show, like a you know, Game of Thrones winter is coming type, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, the president, kind of suggesting that his end may be near, um, or different ways of using pop culture as sort of a vernacular form of resistance, a way of pushing back again at these notions of identity that they object to. And one of the things that I think is really important, uh, both about the practice of this in Turkey and about the way that we study it, is that if you look at sort of protest in the street, this is something that has become almost impossible in Turkey. Um, you're seeing it now, for example, in the resilience of protesters at Boazici University. They've faced massive police crackdowns. They're still out there. But for the most part, you see massive crackdown on the streets. So what opposition figures are doing is kind of turning to smaller, perhaps less visible, perhaps less punishable, more creative forms of resistance to push back against those identity narratives. 
And as you said, this is part of uh, a broader trend within uh, Middle East studies to look at popular culture and to try and really use it as a, as a, as a source for getting into uh, these popular attitudes and the like. Tell us a little bit about your methods and how do you go about doing this once you've decided that things like rap, rap music or uh, TV shows are a good way of, of getting into the substance of politics? Absolutely. You've got you know, amazing scholars like Marwan Crady, you've got Charles Tripp, um, you know, lots of individuals who are looking at these creative forms of resistance, creative insurgency, what Marwan Crady calls it. And I'm really interested in kind of the, the ways in which pop culture can provide these, you know, forms of resistance that really catch people's eye because it's recognizable. Instantly, they're like, oh, I know that rap lyric or I know that television show, and it draws the attention of a much wider audience. So I really wanted to kind of get into the content of television shows, of rap music videos, of these kinds of things, the context in which they're produced, what's going on in politics such that artists are responding and repurposing uh, their material so that they can speak to those political events, and then how do people react to them? Um, the, sort of way that I thought about using pop culture originally came all the way back from my, my dissertation days um, when I was trying to get at different understandings of identity, but wasn't sure how to do that without asking super obvious questions that people were just gonna give rote answers to. And so I'd originally done a sort of wide scale survey of university students asking them which television character they thought best represented the ideal Turkish citizen and why. Um, and which one represented the worst citizen and why. And then they would tell me, oh, you know, I love Polat Alandar because he's super nationalist and he's committed to his country and he's a masculine kind of a guy and he's not afraid to use violence, right? And then I would get completely opposite answers. Someone who's like, oh, this person, you know, likes uh, when people are very tolerant of Kurds around them or is interested in sort of a, a much more intercultural way of understanding Turkish identity. So you got completely different narratives from the answers students were giving. And that's exactly what I was looking for. So kind of thinking about pop culture as a data source, whether it's how respondents are thinking about characters, whether it's the actual content of those particular materials, or it's how people are reacting to them. So one other super quick example, the very first foreign policy piece that I ever wrote, which I think you'll be familiar with, um, was reading Turkish politics through soap operas. And it was about how Erdogan, prime minister at the time, had gotten super head up about the fact that there was this very famous soap opera going on that was about the life of Suleiman the Magnificent, and that women were, you know, prancing around in, you know, they've got their decolletage showing and they're apparently drinking alcohol. And he's like, this is ruining my ability to project, you know, Ottomanism as a credible identity. And so all of a sudden he takes it up. So the fact that politicians are responding to this stuff too really makes it a super interesting data source. And you take up that example of this article a bit when you're talking about kind of the, the politics of, of Ottoman identity on TV. Absolutely. And what's fascinating is that so that particular show, the one I was talking about, Muhtasham Yuzil or the Magnificent Century, drew the wrath of Erdogan because it wasn't promoting, you know, the, the Ottoman leader that he wanted to see. He said, our leaders never did that. Uh, Suleiman was on horseback for 30 years. He wasn't, well, you know, if he, right. if he wasn't enjoying the women, <laughs> there wouldn't have been a dynasty, right? Um, and so there's this policing of that kind of content. And now if you look at the Ottoman theme dramas that are coming out, they are 
sponsored by the government. Erdogan gets private screenings. They are much more focused on piety and Islam as a guiding practice. And so they're really sort of cultivating, the government is involved in cultivating the content of those soap, soap operas so that and they are- It's quite intentional, this promotion of this Ottoman identity, this Absolutely. imperial identity going along with its foreign policy. Very much so, yeah. It's uh, an effort to use that platform as a way to police and promote an understanding of Turkish identity. Um, again, this is where a lot of the scholarship lies. Um, you know, look at the tourism numbers of people that are coming to Istanbul to take pictures of where these soap operas are filmed. Uh, look at people in Pakistan who during Ramadan are absolutely glued to the television when Resurrection Arts Rule is on. It's really, you know, it's a lucrative uh, export as well as a form of cultivating identity. Well, why don't we go to a, a topic near and dear to my heart, uh, uh, rap music. And, um, and you, you have a long, about half the article uh, is taken up with uh, looking at some of these uh, protest rap songs and the various forms of remix culture that go along with it. So, you know, give us some examples of this, how to, what, what you saw and how you interpret them. Yeah, so the reason that I spend so much time on this, I think is if you were someone who was a Turkey observer on September 6th, 2019, and you have anything to do with Twitter, you could not walk away from social media that day. There was just an explosion of emotion, sort of an outpouring of, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe you know people are talking about these issues. So what happened is you have these two rap videos drop simultaneously. And Sark Palauer, AKA Shana Sher, who is the rapper who put together the super large compilation Susamam or I Can't Stay Silent, assures me it was uh, a coincidence. Hmm. But both of these videos, are coming at this super tumultuous time when you've seen a major spike in femicides of women being killed in public by their former partners um, on video at times. And in fact, one of the videos includes the, the audio footage of a woman screaming, I don't wanna die. Um, you know, you'd seen massive crackdown on journalists, on, on lawyers, on academics, on protesters. So at that time for these two videos to kind of capture that spirit of frustration and anger and, and just horror at, at what was going on in Turkish society without being able to express that at the ballot box, without feeling like there's necessarily a political party that represents you. This, with all the emotion and rage that, that particularly wraps so uh, I think well articulates, really galvanized a sort of beleaguered opposition and got people sharing quotes and sharing uh, you know, images from the rap videos and pointing out particular uh, grievances that they, they were frustrated with, frustrated with. So the uh, Susa Mom, I Can't Stay Silent takes on you know, violence against women and uh, corruption and lack of employment for youth and so forth. And so it really touched the nerve of Turkish opposition where you know, they didn't really see an outlet to vent their frustrations and this provided the perfect material to do so. And so this is uh, both intended and received as a direct challenge to Erdogan's authority. So the two videos are different in a sense. Um, one is Ezhel, who's a famous rapper. Um, he's actually gotten in trouble with the law previously. Um, his uh, song called Olay or Incident Event is much more overtly political. You see images of Erdogan, you see images insinuating corruption and sort of really openly uh, targeting the AKP. The Susamam, the I Can't Stay Silent video does none of that. Um, it talks about corrupt politicians and it talks about 
you know, the, the economic constraints that society is facing under a government that is prioritizing its own interests and all of that. But it never explicitly says AKP. And in fact, I've been super lucky to be able to um, have a, a couple of conversations with Sark Palauer, um, again, the collaborator. And he said, we wanted to use our platform as rappers to say something political. He says, often we're not really considered, you know, you associate us with you know, maybe not necessarily contributing positives to society, positively to society, but that's what we want to do. We want to bring together artists to talk about something, to say we're frustrated, but without making it an openly anti-AKP kind of a message. So he was really taking on sociological problems uh, sort of writ large, whereas the other video was very explicitly anti-AKP. So I guess last question is that, uh, you know, you have this incredibly rich uh, uh, description and analysis of the cultural politics in, uh, in Turkey right now, but the article has larger ambitions than that. And so tell us, how do you see the study of pop culture uh, being something which could be incorporated into the field? Where would you like to see uh, comparative politics, international relations go with this kind of methodology? So I'd love to see this expand. Um, you know, I think in political science, we're kind of used to drawing from a whole lot of different disciplines, methodologies, you know, from history to you know, statistics, to economics, to psychology, um, and cultural studies, media studies, communication studies. They hold such anthropology, sociology, people who are already doing this and doing it very, very well. We need to show respect to those people who are very, very well versed in these methods, but they're also sort of the, the repository of a great set of skills that is, I think, useful for answering the, answering the kind of questions that we're interested in. You know, questions of identity politics and power politics and how do particular understandings of citizenship get spread across societies. You know, Laila Abu Lahud does this so well um, in her book, Dramas of Nationhood. And I think as comparativists, we can really use leverage pop culture, not just the content, but the ways in which individuals are repurposing that content and the ways in which individuals are talking about that content. So I kind of see it in three ways, the content itself, the ways in which uh, people who are using it as a form of resistance are repurposing it, and then sort of how do people debate it and how do, you know, what kind of questions do those raise? I think it's just such an incredibly rich source of data that I'm really hoping that we can, again, borrow from an incredibly well-established body of scholarship and use it to answer some of the questions that we're most interested in. It's, it's like you open up this whole new set of resources that you as a researcher and particularly often as a foreign researcher might not otherwise have access to. Well, we've been speaking with Liesl Hintz of Johns Hopkins University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, thank you, Mark. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Michelle Browers of Wake Forest University to talk about her new article, Beginnings, Continuities, and Revivals, an Inventory of the New Arab Left and an Ongoing Arab Left Tradition. It's part of a special issue on Gramsci in Middle East Critique. Uh, Michelle, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me today. It's good to be with you. So tell us about the article. Um, the article is something that came out of a conference in Bari, Italy in 2017 on Gramsci and the Arab world. And I gave a keynote address there. I assume they invited me because I'd written on Gramsci and Arabic before in a 
2003, I think, piece in Theory and Event um, mm -hmm. that ended up in my first book on civil society and Arab political thought. And uh, I, what I did with that keynote is actually go back to the beginning. Um, I talked about some of the first translations of Gramsci into Arabic and how, how it related to a new Arab left. And so, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, that, you know, part of my interest in going back to the beginning was in part because there's so much work coming out right now. I'm sure you've noticed it as well mm -hmm. in the wake of the Arab uprising. So in the 2010s with folks using Gramsci to explain the uprisings and the aftermaths of the uprisings. And so, you know, in some ways it's interesting. We're in this moment, this, you know, Gramscian moment. And in fact, I think that's the language that was used at the conference um, Yet, uh, my earlier work had talked about a Gramscian moment in the 1990s, um, and then here I was at this conference taking up uh, an even earlier Gramscian moment in the 1970s, late 60s, early 70s. And so this is really, this is really interesting then. So you're looking at these, uh, these first uh, Arab engagements with Gramsci, uh, uh, mostly in Lebanon, late 1960s. So tell us a little bit about that and what was so important about it. Well, I mean, there were a few things that were really interesting about it. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is that the translations into Arabic of Gramsci's works um, were happening about the time Gramsci was being translated everywhere else. Uh, some of the first translations into French and into English were around the same time. Um, so that's interesting. I mean, it certainly suggests that uh, these young intellectuals and translators and activists were engaging this material at the same time, other folks in other languages were engaging this material. Another really interesting thing about and, it. And that, kind of shows, and that kind of shows that they're part of this broader global left and not as insular as maybe some people previously believed. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of my aims was to sort of, to sort of chart how in fact uh, they were part of these Gramsci waves that were being talked about in more international circles. Um, at the same time, I'm sort of trying to chart as I'm, draw these continuities between these three periods of how there's sort of a particular left tradition that, that emerges and Gramsci is not the entirety of that, but um, you can see it in these engagements with Gramsci's in these three periods. Um, the other interesting thing about it was as I looked back at it and you know, as a political theorist, I'm looking at textual interpretation um, as well as translations is they were the, the main translators we're looking at the English and the French in this sort of piecemeal format, but they were also pairing it with a lot of other readings. They were looking, for example, at articles coming out of the New Left Review, um, articles coming out, of, oh, actually the book by John Cammett as well on Gramsci that had just come out um, not too long before that. And so again, it sort of suggests this connection with this intellectual milieu um, that they were very much embedded in. And so, and so talk, talk about the people who were doing this. What, what was their position within uh, the broader Lebanese and Arab left? Well, I think they sort of meet the definitions folks give for a new Arab left or a new left anywhere, that they were coming um, at uh, communist activism with some measure of reaction against an old left, some frustration perhaps with the Soviet domination of some of the communist parties in the region uh, and this desire to sort of read a sort of a broader can canon of thought and to make it relevant for their particular situations. Uh, so 
youngish, they're all in their 20s. Um, and some of them had at various points been, you know, kicked out of the Lebanese Communist Party. Some of them came from Arab nationalists and were sort of getting involved with um, more Marxist leftism. Um, and, and they were, you know, they were young students, um, young intellectuals embedded in various ways with intellectual work, journalistic work, um, new academic journals as well, or party journals. Um, and, and so they're, they're in this sphere of, of sort of engagement. Um, they're also, and this is one of the other interesting things about the early translation, sort of working in this fraught environment, both politically fraught, but also the fracturing of the left at this time. Um, they wrote on pseudonyms. So their translation, the first translation we have is under, is uh, the authors are, or the translators are two um, pseudonyms. Uh, it turns out it's Wadal Sharara and Aziz Al-Azmi, um, but, and they use those pseudonyms at various points, but it sort of gives a sense of how, what they were doing they knew was um, impactful and, and a little bit subversive. That's fascinating. So um, what, how were they using uh, Gramsci to understand what was happening in Lebanon and the broader Arab world? You, you talk a lot about how they're reading, they're reading Gramsci and using him within context. Um, so what did they see and how were they uh, using Gramsci? So actually, I mean, I got very involved in looking at the translations, but probably the earliest work of translation that I found in this group is not technically a work of translation at all. It's, a, it's actually a work of application. Mm -hmm. um, the, it's a piece from uh, 1969 and Gramsci is not mentioned in this work. It's, it's done by the Lebanese socialists who this was sort of the meeting space and the name given to this organization that was having these uh, discussion circles and, and reading these works and translating them as well. But they published a piece called Socialist Action and the Contradictions of the Lebanese Situation. And it's a really interesting piece, um, not only because th there's no author on it, the only author on it is Gramsci. <laughs> they put Gramsci on in quotes and scare quotes to sort of signify that this is Gramsci's authoring this in some way. But as I said, Gramsci's not mentioned in the piece. And so in reading the piece and seeing sort of whose name comes at the front of it, knowing a little bit about Lebanese socialists at this time um, or socialist Lebanon, um, as they used various different names. Um, I, I read it with thinking about Gramsci along with them. And, you know, they did a couple of really interesting things that I go into some details about in the article trying to sort of um, lay out a Gramscian reading of Lebanese socioeconomic political um, issues. Um, they focus on, you know, sort of the way in which there's a political feudalism in the particular context of Lebanon and how it's sort of ruling in the name of the bourgeois and serving its interests. Um, so they, they sort of have this Gramscian analysis of a top-down political and ideological structure of, of Lebanese capitalism. And so, and so they're looking at the time at, this, at, the, at the Shahab government and, uh, and, and what he was trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the various reforms that Shahab was in, engaged in at the time to sort of um, restructure the state in various ways. And they're reading it um, through you know, this Gramscian informed lens about, you know, the way in which society 
and political society are interacting in the way in which hegemony works or doesn't work. I mean, part of what they're doing in this piece is actually making an argument about the failure of the Lebanese state and what's sort of taking its place um, in order to, to provide this function of hegemony. Now, one thing which was very interesting was that you were able then to follow up uh, several of these intellectuals who uh, then kind of went back and, and, you know, kind of looked back at their own writing from that period to see what they got right and what they got wrong. And so, you know, how, how do you read their own self-critiques there? Yeah, I mean, part of what I was doing there was sort of looking at how they develop over time. But I, I'm part of my aim really was to demonstrate that it's not that you know, there's this international, there's something in the air, as Ronnie liked to say about intellectual trends um, in the, the 70s, the 90s, and the 2010s. It's not as if they're reacting, um, but they're very much um, using these materials in a very proactive way. So they're not reacting to something that's happened after the fact. They're very much involved in it, but they're also internally engaged in this, this sort of continuous tradition that there are continuities between these translators in in the 70s the debates that went on in the 90s which were primarily around civil society Gramsci gives folks um, folks on the left a way to sort of critically engage a lot of the debate about the role of civil society and democratization projects um, and so too in the 2010s as you know so many scholars and a lot of them situated in Europe and the United States are reading um, the situation through a Gramscian-informed lens, that you're also finding a number of these figures still alive, still sort of thinking back to um, these earlier iterations, so that you have this continuity of sorts of this, this growing and evolving um, intellectual tradition of the left. So that is not reactive, that it's in fact its own thing in, in many ways, not disconnected either, but still not... Uh, something indigenous and, and sort of informed by its earlier iterations. And so you find, um, I, I find this like most interesting in the case of Fawaz Kolsi, who has this great book on Lebanon, the history of modern Lebanon, which came out in 2007. Um, and he's sort of reflecting back on these earlier iterations. In fact, he talks specifically in that work and in some of the biographical work that he's done in Arabic about what these earlier periods meant to him. And so in his work, you can find this sort of continual conversation and this development over time. Labah Sharara as well, who is no longer uh, considered by most people, and I, I doubt he considers himself to be um, a leftist, at least in the Marxist sense. He too, in his work on Hezbollah, for example, is very much informed by this sort of Gramscian milieu. But it's also, of course, um, different um, and moved away from this left perspective. So it, it, I, I find it fascinating to see how individuals who've been sort of at the center of intellectual life on the left and, and sort of Lebanon, pol Lebanese politics proper um, engage in this sort of evolving um, intellectual trajectory. So interesting. So we've been speaking with Michelle Browers of Wake Forest University about a new article about uh, the new Arab left. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for talking to me, Mark. It's good to talk to you.
This is the Paul Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined on this week's book segment by Samdeep Sen of Roskilde University. He's the author of the new book, Decolonizing Palestine, Hamas Between the Anti-Colonial and the Post-Colonial, which was just published by Cornell University Press. Uh, Samdeep, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us about uh, Decolonizing Palestine. Uh, what motivated you to write this book and what do you think is the primary contribution? Um, I would say the contribution is sort of twofold, right? Um, one of the things that I wanted to achieve with this book is to globalize the study of Hamas, where a lot of the existing literature focuses very much on the specificity of Hamas as an organization, as an Islamist organization. While I bring in, say, the works of uh, Franz Fanon, uh, works on post-colonial statecraft that have nothing to do with Palestine, yet I use these works to show that show how Hamas's um, politics is no different from those of anti-colonial and revolutionary factions that we've seen um, throughout time and across the world. Um, I'm also interested in a broader discussions of the life cycles of liberation movements. So um, as the title suggests, um, I say Hamas, that is an anti-colonial faction, is somehow between at the anti-colonial and post-colonial. So what does it mean for the anti-colonial and the post-colonial to coexist in an era of colonial rule? And so I broadly discuss uh, what it means to be liberated, what it means to be unliberated, and what is uh, what does um, and what is the life cycles of liberation struggles and where they start and where they end. It's very striking in the book that how little uh, we see about Islam uh, in comparison to how one would usually think about um, uh, about Hamas. Um, that was uh, purposeful uh, in the sense that there have been a lot of great works that have that have focused and rightly so on Hamas's Islamist identity. But by doing that, um, what happens is that we, in a, in a post 9-11 era where there's a lot of discussions of Islamic radicalism, Islamic terrorism, we fail to recognize that what Hamas does as an anti-colonial faction, its violence, its mode of governance is, a, a, is not very different from liberation organizations around the world. So that's why I've purposefully stayed away from what makes Hamas um, uh, different. Uh, and I've more, for the lack of a better word, I've tried to normalize Hamas by showing the relevance of, um, um, of, of uh, uh, broader discussions of uh, liberation, uh, liberation movements that have uh, uh, from, from places across the world. It's one of the most fascinating things about the book is how you place it within that broader history of, uh, of, of anti-colonial struggles. Um, let's talk a little bit about this tension uh, that you just highlighted between the anti-colonial and the post-colonial. What does that mean in the context of Gaza well, and of Palestine it, more broadly? It, it, it's, um, it's, a, it's For some, it would be a bit provocative to bring in post-colonial in the era of, uh, of, uh, of a still persistent colonial rule. But it means yeah. that um, it, it, it unpacks or it, it um, disturbs our understanding of the life cycles of liberation struggles, right? Usually how you would understand the anti-colonial and the post-colonial is that they exist on two, um, on, on two sides of the moment when the colonizer leaves. 
Here, I'm showing that expectedly anti-colonial violence exists in a, in, a, in a colonial context, but I'm also showing that the way Hamas governs, it's not very different from post-colonial states that we see around the world. Um, so then uh, the book sort of ends up by talking about the other side of the moment of liberation. That is, it shows how um, just as the anti-colonial and post-colonial live alongside each other in the era of colonial rule, not just in Palestine, but in other parts of the world, the struggle for liberation um, exists um, or continues long after the colonizer has left. So then the question becomes, what does, it, um, what does that moment of liberation you know, how, how important is that? How important is the presence or the absence of the colonizer? How important is the day, uh, the Independence Day that we like to celebrate? Well, I'm not saying that that is not a momentous occasion when the colonizer leaves, but liberation isn't contingent on that moment. Mm -hmm. And um, the struggle for liberation, I call it the long moment of liberation that begins long before the colonizer has left but it also means that uh, the struggle for liberation for, as we've seen in other parts of the world, but uh, I would expect for Palestine as well, the struggle for liberation will continue long after the official end of colonial rule. Now you, you, you discussed quite a lot um, Oslo as a major inflection point, kind of introducing this um, state, this not state, but sort of state uh, via the Palestinian authority um, and that kind of, it kind of interferes with that uh, linearity where you have the simultaneous post-colonial and anti-colonial. So tell us a little bit about Oslo and where Hamas fits into that process of whatever you would call it, semi-statehood. Yeah. Um, so, so of course, Hamas as an organization, you know, came into being long before Oslo. But Oslo, the Oslo Accords, which was signed in 1993, were officially sold as this um, um, iconic uh, uh, peace agreement, iconic agreement between Palestinian faction and the state of Israel. And it also led to the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, which was meant to be a precursor to the eventual Palestinian state. The Oslo Accords was this interim agreement. So it was supposed to end in a few years and five years, if I'm not mistaken, and eventually it would be the institutional basis for the event, for the, for the state of, for the sovereign state of Palestine. Um, as we've seen, um, the, the, the sovereign Palestinian state has yet to come, yet the Palestinian Authority as a pseudo state, as a governing entity has existed. And it has also um, been the sort of the focal point of international political, um, uh, in, in, um, uh, international investments in terms of aid that is flow, that flows into, into the Palestinian territories. A lot of resources are put into keeping up the Palestinian Authority as the pseudo governing entity that postures very much like the state, has all the institutions of the state, um, um, of the state-like institutions, um, has um, um, a police force, yet it operates in a stateless context. So it becomes almost like a, the ritual of statecraft exists in a non-state context. Now you place all of this uh, within the broader uh, theoretical framing of, uh, of settler colonialism, which you view as an ongoing process. Right. Yes, yeah, so in some ways, um, uh, chapter two is where I really get into a discussion of settler colonialism. Um, 
which which is premised not just on the use of um, of the indigenous population as a source of labor um, and and the, the, uh, as a mode of extracting resources, but settler colonialism is also premised on the uh, assumption of the non-existence of the indigenous population, which means that. It is premised on this idea that Palestine doesn't exist and the Palestinian people don't exist as, an, as, a, as a national community. So what I show both through the um, discussion of Hamas's anti-colonial violence, but also is post-colonial statecraft, I don't wanna call it a post-colonial state, right. that what it comes down to very much is about underlining both in the failures of anti-colonial uh, violence and all the and the success and the, and the failures of the post-colonial statecraft, it comes down to underlining the existence of Palestine as a cause and the existence of Palestinians as a people, as a national community. One of the one of the points that you make in that context, which is interesting, is the way that Hamas and uh, the way its violence is perceived in a sense enables it what you call this both invisibility and hypervisibility. Right. In some ways, <laughs> in some ways, yeah, in some ways, um, what what Hamas's violence does is um, it it it. it places Gaza, it places Hamas as a, as a faction very much at the center of uh, public discourses on, 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 on of Gaza. But what it also does is that Hamas is often treated as um, an exception, as outside the normal scope of discussions of, 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 of Palestinian politics, which means that it is taken out of the context of a liberation of a, of a liberation of an ongoing liberation movement, and that's one of the reasons why I move away from this discussion of Hamas as an Islamist organization because I didn't want to because I wanted to normalize Hamas and I wanted to normalize Gaza as very much representative of the broader struggles of the Palestinian people and the broader settler colonial context that Pal the Palestinian liberation movement is fighting against. Of course, Gaza itself bears historically bears um, in some ways is demographically um, is demographically felt the direct um, consequences of the establishment of the State of Israel, where it's uh, with 1948, uh, with the Nakba, um, uh, it became a place where with the demographic majority of refugee, refugees that um, fled uh, following, the, following the establishment of the State of Israel. So that historical legacy already exists. But Hamas has also, uh, Gaza has also been some almost indomitable in its anti-colonial struggle, where it's been a place that has started in the fathers. It's, a, it's been also the place where um, a lot of the, um, the most prominent anti-colonial armed factions have been trained. Leaders have been, have come out of Gaza. So in some ways, it, 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 it is a microcosm of both the past and the presence present of the settler colonial of the settler colonial um, occupation of the Palestinian lands, but also the past and present of the Palestinian struggle for liberation. I think it's fascinating that uh, that you put Gaza at the center of the Palestinian story rather than at the margins where it too often um, ends up. Yeah, I mean, this is um, something that I have um, noticed very much in both the academic literature 
on 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 Palestine, where um, Gaza is somehow placed as this sort of um, special case with the um, especially contemptible organization ruling it, which is Hamas. And it's the same thing that I've seen in, say, um, you know, in my field work in, um, in, in, in Tel Aviv, talking to Israeli academics, where there is a real struggle to normalize Hamas, to, to talk about Gaza or to talk about uh, the, the struggles of the Palestinian population in Gaza as, as an extension of the Palestinian struggle in general, even when it comes to um, academics and individuals who would otherwise see themselves as somewhat sympathetic to the Palestinian cause. So in the book, for instance, I talk about a presentation I gave at, a, at an Israeli university where I talk about the everyday struggles of, of, life, in, of life in Gaza. Here, I didn't mention Hamas or violence at all in this presentation, it was mostly about life under siege. Yet the questions was very much about how Hamas is an extension of uh, global Islamic terrorism. So um, there is a, there's been a real struggle both in the public discourse and in the academic literature to normalize, to normalize Hamas, to see it as an extension of the Palestinian struggle. So that's what I've tried to achieve with the book. Well, so with this question of normalizing Hamas, I think that, you know, that gets to what's probably going to be the most controversial part of the book, which is the way you discuss uh, violence and the role that it plays in all of this. Um, and you read violence, again, as you said, um, through the lens of Franz Fanon and the struggle against colonialism. So tell us a little bit about this and, and how you understand uh, the ways that Hamas uses violence and the functions that it plays in, their, in, in the organization, in, in the governance, and for individuals. Um, yeah, so um, the, the reason for using Franz Fanon was to open up the discussion about violence um, uh, in terms of um, uh, the role of violence that uh, the role of violence um, in liberation con liberation movements in general. So when I talk about Hamas's violence, I try to uh, relate it to say the way violence is being used by the Kashmiri liberation struggle, the way violence that was used during the Indi Indian independence movement, in the, in the Kurdish liberation movement, right? So there is of course the material aspect of violence, right? Of, of uh, violence as something that injure, maims, and kills. But I also recognize that um, the violence of an oppressed people, the uh, violence of Hamas is um, weak, materially weak compared to the military prowess of the state of Israel. So violence is not just about the materiality. Violence is also about the symbol of violence, the, 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 the celebration of violence, the stories of violence that people tell. So a lot of times uh, when I discuss um, through the course of the book, when I'm talking about violence, I'm not just talking about material violence, I'm talking about how people think about violence, how Hamas um, displayed or celebrated its ability to carry out violence, um, rather than, you know, actually talking about the materiality of but the materiality itself is, of course, quite brutal. Right. Absolutely. It's quite brutal. And it often has um, uh, incurs greater costs on Palestinians than it incur than it uh, than, than than the impact it has on on Israel or the Israeli forces um, in the Palestinian territories. Um, and that's where um, 
I talk about not just the unmaking or the uh, uh, the uh, the ability of uh, Hamas's violence to unmake uh, or or dismantle uh, colonial rule, but I also talk about how the very um, act of carrying out a violent act, the very act of um, of resistance, uh, plays an important role in in building Palestinian sense of self, where you get to say that, you know, I'm still fighting for the Palestinian cause. And if you get injured, then the scar becomes a reminder of the still continuing Palestinian struggle, right? And a lot of the interviews that I go through, especially of non-politically affiliated Palestinians, um, it is a lot, those discussions very much are about, are, are very much about the symbol of violence, the symbol of struggle, and how even though they have suffered while fighting for Israel, or fighting against Israel, fighting for the Palestinian cause, those scars are a reminder of their own Palestinians, which sometimes they feel is being, is disappearing under the, the shadow of uh, settler colonial rule. So for example, you mentioned that, that this violence, um, something along the lines of it, it challenges or destabilizes the identity of the colonizer uh, by, by kind of reminding them of the, of, of the reality of, of, of the people being colonized. I, I wondered about that because it seems like in your narrative that the violence actually helps to reinforce that identity. In other words, by reducing Gaza to Hamas, it maybe allows Israelis to avoid dealing with the reality of Palestinians living there. Um, and I was curious about that tension within, within the book. Um, yeah, I, I, I see your point in, in, in the sense that um, that violence allows um, Israel or Israelis to treat Gaza, Palestinians in Gaza and Hamas as um, sort of uh, particularly bad or particularly contemptible. So outside the normal discussion. This, so is, I, I this is your but Hamas moment. The but Hamas moment, exactly. Um, yet I think for Palestinians, um, that violence is, or that, uh, that um, the armed struggle, the Mukama, is an important part of feeling Palestinian or, 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 or being reminded that the Palestinian cause continues. And that's sort of in general, um, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you look at the narratives of liberation struggles, a lot of times it's about these sort of euphoric moments, right? But mm -hmm. what I've tried to show here is that liberation, you know, a lot of times the treachery of colonial rule is such that liberation movements, the task of the liberation movement is not just to fight the colonizer, is to also keep up the, 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 the keep up the liberation struggle, keep reminding oneself that we still exist as a people, we're still here and we still want to uh, want to, uh, we're still committed to the struggle for liberation. This of course is in the context of, of Palestinian society which is sharply divided over these questions. Um, absolutely and um, um, as you know, I, I, I refer to it a little bit in this in the book where um, there is a huge divide um, between Palestinian factions where um, I have some interviews say with Fatah officials who trivialize Hamas's, um, Hamas's violence or Hamas's mukawama or their um, constant urge to continue fighting for the Palestinian struggle. I've also um, referred to say, um, um, I've also, um, the book also draws on interviews with um, 
former bodyguards of, uh, for, of Yasser Arafat who talk about how yes, liberation, fighting, uh, taking up arms was something we did in the past. Nonetheless, um, today we wear a suit and today our job is to build a state rather than fight. So yes, um, definitely it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a divided political landscape. And you go back, um, you call back several uh, earlier studies of, uh, of like the commemoration of the Fadayeen and the celebration of resistance as uh, something which has deep roots in, in kind of post-48 Palestinian culture. Absolutely. And I think that, um, and that, that's maybe another, another important point of the book where, yes, Hamas is in the title, but I try to, just as I try to pair Palestine and or place Palestine, place Hamas in the pantheon of uh, liberation struggles that have existed around the world. I also try to embed uh, Hamas within the broader Palestinian liberation struggle where the, 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 the armed struggle has actually has, has long preceded Hamas. And even if tomorrow Hamas decides to officially give up its armed struggle, it will continue through another organization, through another means. So in some ways, it's important to not just focus on an organization, but to also um, talk about these, these sort of uh, modes of political behavior. So in, I think at some point in the book, I actually say that um, this book is not just about Hamas, it actually provides an ethnography of anti-colonial violence and post-colonial statecraft, which are modes of political behavior that I believe will exist, whether or not it's adopted by Hamas or another organization. Throughout the book, there's a, there's a number of um, comparisons and references to the FLN in Algeria, and uh, and of course drawing on Fanon and, uh, and the FLN experience, um, it doesn't suggest necessarily that uh, what emerges in this post-colonial state is um, going to be well governed or democratic or or free in any meaningful sense. And so I was curious how you once you've globalized Hamas and made these comparisons. What does that mean for you when you think about uh, the future of governance and what, what this kind of liberation might produce? Um, in some ways, um, uh, as, I, as I end up talking about, um, uh, I end up talking about what it means to be liberated towards the end of the book. Um, I think that um, it is very unlikely, as I say, it's very unlikely that the struggle for liberation will, will cease right after the flight of the colonizer. And that's primarily because what we are missing and what colonized people struggle in general is to tap into a memory of, an, uh, of, of a time, of a, of a memory of indigeneity that is not tarnished by the period of colonial rule. So in some ways, the modes of statecraft that we adopt the mode of the modes of public violence that we that we adopt. Um, we, you talked about FLN, but also in, in other post-colonial contexts, is somehow compelled to draw on the legacies of colonial rule. So the struggle to liberate oneself will constantly continue because we don't have a, you know, a memory of uh, a memory of a time where we can just bypass the legacies of legacies of colonization and build an, a sense of indigeneity of a sense of indigenous identity. Um, so in some ways, um, um, this is not a very positive outlook uh, where I would say that uh, the, the, 
the colonized people, the formerly colonized people are somehow compelled to struggle for liberation um, perpetually because maybe it is when we struggle for liberation that's the only time that we are able to conjure some sense of indigeneity. So in terms of, in terms of that and actually taking a step back in terms of uh, the, the research for the book, you begin, you open with uh, your encounter with Rafa uh, uh, border crossing and reflections on the performativity of the state versus the reality of occupation. So tell us just a little bit then about your ethnographic encounter with Gaza and, um, and these trappings of statehood. Yeah, so um, I went into Gaza with a very naive understanding of what a liberation movement or a liberation um, faction is meant to look like. So of course, while as I, as, I, as I detail at the onset of the book, while I was entering Rafa, um, uh, uh, the Rafa border crossing between Egypt and, 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 Gaza, and the Gaza Strip, it looked very much like a place that was colonized, that was under siege, that was not sovereign. Yet when I moved into the Palestinian, um, Palestinian side of this terminal, all the trappings of a normal, um, you know, um, passport control, uh, pass, passport control um, uh, uh, desk uh, existed. It, it felt like I was at a real airport. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the back and forth that continued throughout my time in, 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 in the Gaza Strip, where of course you would, there's a sense of normalcy, whether it's uh, bureaucratic measures of the, of the Palestinian, of the Hamas rule, uh, Palestinian Authority in the Gaza Strip, um, uh, uh, whether it's the way the the police uh, the, the police acted like a normal police force in any other part of the world, yet you would always then you would you know this this sort of this um, um, air of normal normalcy would break and you would suddenly see uh, you know a, a building that has been destroyed by an Israeli bombing or an Israeli jet flying really low. All the pictures of of, of Palestinian martyrs that you would see um, see across uh, across across uh, the Gaza Strip, this sort of back and forth also continued when you talked to Hamas officials. And um, a funny thing that happened when I went into went to Gaza was that I didn't go in with any I didn't I didn't I, I didn't come with any formal wear. <laughs> and it turns out that I had to wear a suit to meet some of these uh, Palestinian, uh, some of these Hamas officials because they postured very much like representatives of a state. So I ended up buying a suit in Gaza to meet Hamas officials, which sort of, you know, broke my understanding of what a liberation faction is meant to look like. Yet in the conversations while wearing a suit, while having a Palestinian flag in the, in the background, they would talk about liberation. So this back and forth existed both in the, uh, in the way uh, Hamas officials behaved with me. So maybe the last, uh, last thing we can talk about then is that you know th this book is so rich and so full of the ethnographic observations and uh, and theory. Um, now that it's published, uh, what do you hope will be its impact on those who study uh, Palestine, Israeli-Palestinian relations, or more broadly, um, liberation struggles? Um, I think uh, for um, specifically for Palestine studies, I think um, what has been missing 
or the study of Israeli-Palestinian conflict in general, what has been missing is a discussion of Gaza, a discussion of Hamas that um, sees itself as, you know, that, 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 that um, draws on the uh, much more, um, uh, that the, the, the theoretical rich work that has been done on Palestine in recent years that have sought to globalize Palestine. John Collins wrote this book on global Palestine, mm -hmm. where it sees Palestine as a microcosm of these global processes, global struggles of violence, state building, liberation. So um, I hope, or the hope is that through this book, um, whether it's researchers, whether it's students, they can see that hum there is also the possibility of having this or, or, or introducing this theoretically rich work to the study of Hamas, to the study of Gaza. But in general, I think from the life cycle in terms of the struggle of, uh, in, in terms of the study of liberation movements in general, I think um, there is a lot to unpack in terms of this division that we see between the anti-colonial and the post-colonial. In some ways, um, you don't really see discussions about liberation that much anymore. And I, uh, through, the, through the case of Palestine, through the case of Hamas, through the case of Gaza, what I hope is to, um, is to bring back this discussion of what it means to be liberated and to what extent can we, can we be, uh, then can, can, a, can, a, can a colonize people um, formulate an indigenous identity and what are the struggles for liberation that continue or the struggles for indigeneity that continue long after the colonizers left, long after, um, uh, uh, long into the, the era of the post-colonial state. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Somdeep Sen about his new book, a Decolonizing Palestine, Hamas Between the Anti-Colonial and the Post-Colonial, um, just published by Cornell. Uh, Somdeep, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me.